hard to pick ourselves up after a full day of work and family <clears throat> and to come into a gathering such as this and raise to the occasion of the Dharma. Oftentimes our minds are dulled by the day's events. They're often sleepy, sleepy and fatigued. We could be carrying a mood or an attitude that the day left with us. And somehow coming into this space is supposed to help us be refreshed and many times it just don't seem to have the uh, stamina or the, uh, the energy to raise ourselves so that we can hear anew, so that we can listen beyond what our minds are fixed upon, what our moods are dwelling upon. And so it's often difficult to do that, but the opportunity is there. Whether you take it or not, that's up to each of us. But the opportunity is there to transcend that bog of thought and feeling uh, moment after moment. And so um, just to take a moment and pause with yourself to see what you're carrying into this lecture and to see what it is that you can bring out that's clear that's inside and able to listen and discern with some clarity what is being said, not through the day, uh, but uh, it's, it's transcending the day in some way. I don't know how many of you uh, heard the uh, public radio program this afternoon on churches in, in Washington State. <coughs> so, so we rank a 45th in the country in churches per capita. <laughs> a decade ago, we were 49th, and we slipped. <laughs> and uh, they didn't give the exact number, but they said uh, Seattle is near the end of, of as a metropolitan area of per capita churches. So the east side of the mountains must be bringing us down into the... <laughs> but but I have, what I have always appreciated about this area is that it, um, it's religiosity or being caught within the organizational structure of a religion isn't really where most of us are uh, interested in staying and dwelling. And it's not to mean that many of us don't receive a lot from a church, and I don't want to disparage people who go, but for, for some of us who come into this area, uh, we're not looking for a second, we're not looking for a secondary relationship with, with a spiritual figure. We're not asking ourselves to, uh, you know, to come into someone else's interpretation of what the Bible may mean or the symbolisms uh, that uh, don't really give us direct access to what is spiritual. They give us a representation, a symbol of what is spiritual, in terms of a cross or even this fellow next to me, are symbols. But I think most of us are hungry for the real thing. Now in this area, all around us are mountains and oceans and water bodies and enormous trees. Uh, so why would we want to be stay, why would we want to stay captive 
in a congregation when the access is so relevant and immediate as you walk outdoors. And so I, I really uh, appreciate the fact that we are less church-bound as a area than many of us because I think it says something about our spiritual instincts. I think it says something about the calling of our heart. Uh, and again, that's not to discourage people who find a lot of meaning within a church congregation and doing the works, uh, good works of any uh, church. But there's just something in us, some impulse to be free, that uh, it doesn't feel quenched, at least it never did with me, uh, within any kind of setting that seemed, uh, I didn't even quite understand where the where the doctrine was going. I didn't understand clearly what the intent of the churches I attended were saying to my spirit. Where, what, were they sending me on a direction or were they just making me fearful and uh, righteous? I know it, was, it wasn't clear to me the journey I was on in a church. And, uh, but there was hunger for a journey. There was hunger for a view of another possibility. And I think some of us might have found that within, uh, our, uh, within our own uh, intuition. We might have found our way into Buddhism, but not to be a Buddhist. I mean, there, really, one ism is as good as another but because it gives us some sense of a potential in which we can, in which we can grow into, in which we can uh, find access. And that is really what I was speaking about a couple of weeks ago when I was talking about wise view. I don't want to be held, and I hope you don't either, to, in a symbiotic, or uh, uh, yes, within symbolism, uh, for my spiritual quenching. I don't want uh, 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 some uh, head minister to tell me or for me to tell you what, where your hunger lies, where your questions are, what, what you need to do in order to be spiritual. That's too, that is the sacred. And for anyone to rearrange your inward side so that you'll be coordinated with a convention, the conventional way that that particular congregation is going is a-spiritual, against the spirit. This is, we're really on our own, as I have mentioned many times, when we work within our own dispositions, within our own intuitions, within our own sense of what is needed within ourselves. <clears throat> but it's a, beautiful, uh, it's a beautiful journey of the heart, not as well defined perhaps as the mapped out positions that a formal religion will give us, but something that is truly wondrous to the spirit. We start with that wonder. We don't start with a map and a description and a, and a do this and don't do that scenario. And so to come into that 
uh, that level of ambiguity uh, doesn't uh, satisfy all of us. Uh, in fact, that's what a church provides. It provides an unambiguous message that's held within the conventional systems of, of the culture. And it's like one of those uh, lottery wheels it just keeps turning over a whole bunch of numbers, but it never, the numbers never escape the cage they're in. This keeps turning over and over and over, somehow held within a kind of a system that if you look at the system and from any system, it's really unwise view. It's a view of self and other. It's a view of rearranging our lives, adapting our lives a little, trying to be more this way or that way, but it doesn't really allow us to get out of the cage. It doesn't allow us to a sense of, of possibilities in ourselves. And uh, I just I, I say that because th this is only and forever what we do here. This is only and forever the true way, and I don't mean Buddhism is a true way, but the, our own way is the true way. What we need is the true way. What our disposition is, what our, and we have to find our true way through all of this traffic of noise. And the possibility is there for us, but it requires an aloneness it requires a fine-tuning of the heart and a fine-tuning of our spirit to the heart and so that we can move in conjunction with what we know in ourselves to be true and to be our essential next step. And no one, no one can give us that, ever. So in some ways, we, we move outside of the tradition. We move outside of convention. We move outside of what people have told us to do. Because there's a sense in us that something is not being captured completely within any cultural or societal um, expression. That something, something in life is much richer than our mind's interpretation and the way we speak about it and the language itself somehow seems to hold us tightly pressed within our own concepts. But there's something, something in us that calls us deeper and much more intimately into life. And it's that that we are trying to reach. And there's a sense, a vague sense, when we talk about wise view, a vague sense of, of a view, something that's out there that we have to decide that we want to undertake. Now, to use a very poor analogy, a very poor analogy of, of you, let us say that we thought there was something more valuable on the East Coast than the West Coast, and that you had never been to the East Coast and that you had to get there, you had to make the journey. So whatever it is that we perceive the East Coast holds that would re allow us to be feeling complete when we got to the East Coast, that's the view. And someone says, okay, now you have to travel. You have to walk from the West Coast to the East Coast. And it seems to be a long walk, so you better take some supplies. And so the techniques, the meditations, the, 
all the different uh, skillful means and the Zabutans and Zafus we put on our back and we set off on this journey <coughs> and we bring our lunch because it's supposed to be long, right? And along the way we began to sense that we don't need all the luggage that we brought. But the man told us that we should take a lot because it's a long journey. So we keep it on our back even though the burden of the sun and the hills and the mountains and the sweat and all of that is taking much heavier toll on ourselves than we need to take if we just let that stuff off and walked free of it. But many of us decide that we want to keep that on long after its usefulness. The real question is, do we have enough intention? What is our intention? You see, we know that the view of the East Coast, and this is where it gets very, okay, so we get, the East Coast, <laughs> the East Coast wise view of the East Coast, we need an intention. We need to have some sense of ourselves, and I'm speaking tonight about wise intention. You'd never know it. <laughs> but you need to have some, so, okay, I want to get there, right? And the intention holds the view of where I'm going and applies the necessary energy to get there. And it's like, okay, you know, I, I really want this thing. And now I'm just going to let that metaphor go. As we journey into wise view, that sense of ourselves being more connected, less disconnected, less separate, uh, begins to get us, we get a sense of it. We get a sense of it. You know, we just our willingness to stay connected to each aspect of ourselves, internal, and through the internal, not allowing the internal to form the external without our staying connected, so that the formation of the external is part of the connection we stay within, we, as that begins to unfold, we say, oh, wow, so I get it now. You see, I, I'm beginning to sense this. I'm beginning to sense where what wise view is all about. I'm beginning to sense where this journey goes. But we have to have the intention. And this is huge. I can't underestimate this step in the Eightfold Path called, called wise intention. Because as I'll mention just briefly here, uh, and there is more on uh, the book I wrote, etc. But intentionality, uh, you, you know, you can get lost in the view and have wise view, but you could, you could have uh, a misplaced intention. Or you could have a wise intention but the wrong view. Your heart could be wanting to, uh, wanting to uh, be complete, but you don't have any sense of what that completion looks like outside of yourself. And maybe it means, you know, just sitting on the right hand of God. I don't know. What does it mean in Christian or in other? I don't understand that. How does it, how does it solve the problem? How does it get us over the rancor, the burden of stress and distress that all of us go through? How does that solve the problem? It has to solve a problem. It has to solve the fundamental problem of humankind if it's going to be a wise view. It can be any view, but it doesn't necessarily be wise unless it solves the problem at hand. 
Okay, so in Buddhism, we put it out there. We say, okay, the view is interconnectedness. Now, all the problems that we ever perceive are caused by the disjoining, by the object-making, by the mentality of self and other. And if we solve that basic, basic untruth, we will find ourselves within a view that does not allow suffering in by its very definition. So, but the intention, the energy to actually move into that view, it may sound great. Yeah, the East Coast sounds great to go to it, but yeah, I have more to do on the West Coast. Right? So that may sound great, but you know, I don't know, I kind of like my life here. And so you can see immediately the competing intentions really uh, cause a, a collision of of objectives. So I want to speak for a moment about uh, competing intentions so that we get a real sense of, of what this is. What I call the primary intention or that uh, impulse to be free isn't all of us. All of us hold the impulse to be free. Uh, and but if, it may not be obvious to us that we have that. Uh, we play around with practice, but because that impulse to be free uh, is another way of saying it is uh, the, this, the desire for completion or fulfillment, absolute fulfillment, not relative fulfillment, but to be fulfilled. To, to not be thirsty or hungry anymore. And I don't mean that in terms of food and water. So when, you, when we hear that, uh, what the mind does with that is very different than what the heart, how the heart emanates that. The heart emanates an urge towards it, but what the mind does, because the mind can only look in terms of me and what I need. It looks in terms of self and other, of object and subject. That's the only way it can see. So when that bubbles up into the mind, the mind says, oh, I want something. I need something in order to be complete. So then it goes on a journey of trying to complete itself by acquiring what it thinks it needs. And it can be anything. It can be, when you're young, it's you know, a new bicycle. When you're older, children or a partner. And when you're older yet, you want some sense of, of self-resolution. So therapy or whatever it is, some sense of resolution of self. The problem is that the resolution of self is not itself a resolution. And no ma there's no such thing as a self-actualization, actualized mind. There's no such thing as that. Because the sense of self can't be actualized. By its very nature, it, need, it wants and fears. And that is the antithesis of actualization. So if you're going to go that route, you're going to find yourself uh, thwarted again and again from the sense of absolute completion. 
of where I, where can I rest here? And I don't mean, I mean, where can I mentally release the burden of my life? See, that's a very different kind of question. But if we want to stay in this view, if our intention is to stay in this view, perhaps the best we can do is to add, modify, adapt our psychology so that it works a little better. So that I don't feel quite as angry, that I feel a little more polished inside, that I feel a little self-reliant, or all of those things, which are not at all not, they're all useful, but they're just not complete. And so the intention, this intention to be free gets stubbornly thwarted, blocked by the mind's attempt to find within its view of self and other the sense of completion that it needs in order to feel at rest. And so within its view, it continually tries to do that for a whole lifetime or many lifetimes if you believe in that. To what success, though? How many of you have had more than a few moments pause before something else was troubling or disturbing or fearful or desirable? And then it's like, oh, come on, you know, what's going on here? Is it just me? Some people hold it together as if it seems like it's just me. But when you speak to them and scratch beneath the surface, they're as needy as any of us. And so then the intention, once we have, and this is, a, this is where so much of our energy needs to be placed, but we misplace it. We need to go into the desires that we think are crucial for our sense of completion and see if the payoff is worth the pain of their pursuit. If you don't do that, you'll think in your mind, well, if I had just had, or if I could just obtain, although it's not possible that I ever will, and therefore I have to live with this kind of ongoing incompletion, if, but if I only had, right? So you go into it. You want to end that false truth. You want to end the speculation. You want to, okay, if this thing's going to do it to me, let me have it, right? So some of us get into multiple partners. Some of us get into multiple foods. Some of us just get into multiples. <laughs> it's, it's anywhere that I can go that will give me a new taste, a new intensity, a new variety, a new experience. Now, see, this is important. Bear with me here because it gets... Okay, it gets a little bit out there, but then I'll come back. When you're a person, as an object, when you think of yourself as a person, you think of yourself as an object, right? So you look out and you see other objects. Objects form objects from perception. You can't be, you ha when you look out and see objects, you can be damn certain that you feel like an object inside. Objects see objects, that's what they see. So what's the best thing an object can do? What's the greatest gratification an object can give itself? It can bring another object close to it. And it can experience that object. Right? So an experience is the best 
two objects can have together. That's it. And what's an experience, for God's sake? It's a, it's a feeling of pleasantness at its best with a lot of narrative going on and, you know, some sense of something. I don't know. It's, it's pleasant. And then I change and no longer I get bored with it or it changes and it's no longer pleasant or something happens and the two... And then I give up that experience and I seek another one. So the best I can do as an embodied person is to have an experience of the world for my fulfillment. And how fulfilling is that? Start there and ask the question to see how fulfilling an experience ever, ever is. Because it's not the object, it's the experience that will never be fulfilling. We've invested what we think, we've invested the substance into the object. We've invested its pleasure into the particular object. We've invested all that from our mind. So what we're really trying to do is have a mental experience with ourselves. Because it's all coming from us. An object isn't intrinsically pleasant. It's because we've conditioned the idea of it being pleasant from past association. It's coming from us. So we are really having, trying to have, isn't this, I mean, when you think about it, you go, my God, lights go off, or they should go off. What am I doing in my whole life? I'm trying to, I'm trying to take myself to bed with me. <laughs> Multiple times. <laughs> It's not going to work. This thing is destined to... How, but it's not that difficult to see that. So what, what, what are we all doing? I mean, you know, that's what I don't understand. It's like it's not that difficult. Just see how much an experience will give you. Because that's it. That's all life will ever part, part, partake. That's all you could ever partake in life is, okay, so this is a great experience. And you know, even as you're having it, that it's ephemeral. It's coming and it's going. And that's it. And then the next one. And this one isn't so pleasant. Right? And that's it. Now that's as, as the old, within the old view, that's the best life can ever possibly hold. And so I want to say to myself, okay, I've asked life to give me a lot more than what ye just described. There's got to be more to it. Well, see if there is. If there is, great. Please come and tell me. I will <laughs> I've been waiting for the messenger to tell me. But there isn't and hasn't been and could not be one because that's all it will ever be. So then you think, okay, you know, enough. Enough. This is enough. I don't have to keep having experiences, even though there are some that I've never had, like I've never had children. That might be the one. No, because experience itself can't do it. I don't care what experience you place at the other end of that. It isn't going to be sufficient. Wow. What a downer this talk is. 
<laughs> but it's not. It's not. Because when the energy divests from the things we have made, it goes to the primary impulse to be free. And now you're not sidetracked. The energy doesn't get sidetracked into the multiple objects that we have tried to find our sense of completion within. It's gone. It's no more. It's like, okay, this is nice. But who? It's like, I went uh, paragliding. Like, I thought this was really going to, you know, it's like, this is the one experience. And it was very fun. It was a lot of fun. Went way up there, 2,000 feet. Could look over the hole. And then I got down, and the, they were trying to sort of sign me up for lessons, you know. And I thought, just give me a little time to let this thing settle down. And I got in the car, drove away, and said, I'm glad I had that experience. And it's over. I don't need to learn how to paraglide. That was good enough. It was just a, I don't know, it was. Some of us have to take that last experience to, you know, and, and milk it to see if it may be, but it ain't. Just not. So this clears away a lot of rubbish so that our intention can be honed now. Now here's the problem, you see, is an un we have unhoned intentions. Our intention if you're going after the impulse to be free, cannot be sidetracked even one atom's worth. Because as soon as you want the world to be an experience, you'll have it, but you can't have both. You can't walk between two views. You can't straddle the fence, wanting to milk experience and the completion because completion means the end of experience. It means the end of the investment in experience. Experiences will continue to happen. This is what the mind, how mind works. But you see, now something else has risen that is ablaze. And now we sense the proximity of, of the new view. Now, a new view is great. It's like a carrot in front of you. It keeps you walking after the carrot. But the living of it is what we want, not the image of it. The view holds the image of where we're going. And it's a great uh, aid towards getting there, because if you lose where you're going, you'll lose where you're going. But what we're doing, we want, to, we want to abide in this. That's completion. Not have an image of it, because that's an experience. So ultimately what we're trying to do is to live, live. It's hard to say, because how do you bring two things? You say to live life, then you have you living life. But this is... I guess as close as you could say is life living itself. This is just, what do we think spontaneity is? You see? 
holding ourselves at bay or having commentary over is that sense of reserve, that insecure reserve that we all feel before we give ourselves over to something, we want to hold ourselves in protection to make sure it's safe enough to give ourselves away. All that has to go. All that is the way, in the old view, we protected ourselves from unwanted experiences. By having a commentary that told us whether this experience was something that we should partake in or not. And what this is requiring, what this intention is requiring, is the ending of that. It's wholeheartedness. Wholeheartedness. So we see, we begin to say, what are we validating that is untrue? And I realized as I move through the ways I constantly form myself in relationship to life, and every time I do, there's a sense of disconnectedness and pain associated with that division. And so what gets under our skin is that if we're going, if we're going to solve this universal riddle, we can't do it partially. And the need to have experiences, this is, moves right with us in the spiritual realm too. People think, oh, if I just had the, the enlightened experience, if I just had this experience or that experience, then that experience would what? Would put you into the spell of the old view. Would keep you there. Until you had another experience, or until you had an experience in which you no longer had that experience. But all of that, you see, is just translated gibberish from the old view we were in. This is a new view. This is a new way of partaking in life. This is a new showing up. This is a new revelation of heart. Long since now have we moved beyond the pews of structured form or the bowing of symbols. Now we're on our own in some vast but wondrous space that allows the possibility of the completion. Where does that happen? It happens now. <laughs> Not someplace. Some place was the old view's view. I've got to go there in order for it to be given to me as an experience. It's the raw acknowledgement that completion is at hand. It's the willingness, the, the willingness to to reframe everything that's coming at us in terms of self and other as only self. There is no other. All states of mind do not tell us that some part of us is missing. They have no words that divide us into what is and what needs to be. There's no word that does that. 
As soon as you give the power to that word, you've given the power to the division of time and yourself in pursuit of an everlasting image. So there's a come what may attitude that comes now. And the renouncing of a partial heart. And a willingness, and this is extremely important, the willingness to put that view into action, regardless of whether it's complete in its vision, action needs to follow it. Because the action is the embodiment. It's the cellular embodiment of wrong view. And that needs to be turned around. It isn't going to just be turned around in some kind of trickle-down effect if I sit for 20 years. We have to actually live it. We have to actually live it. And that's what all these talks, nine of them, on fundamentals is about, is to give us that way to move cellularly, generosity, ethical conduct, living within, staying within myself. All of these things have been our attempts to live the view of union prior to its completion in terms of the, it's, in terms of it resolving itself in our own heart. And as we move, and we start very basically, you start with your neuroses. And you start moving in the opposite direction of what your neurotic mind tells you you should be doing. Oh, I shouldn't, what does he think of me? Or, uh, you just stand up and you say hello and you just do that and your whole inside is caving in as you do it and you stand there anyway. And the cells in your body change in accordance with that. You think this is easy? It is. If you're willing to stand up to your mind, if you're willing to assume nothing that your mind has ever told you to be the complete truth. <laughs> you know, I, as I teach retreats, I'm a retreat setting is for people to really work in a wholehearted way but mostly, all of us show up, and I certainly remember this in me, with part of ourselves still in Seattle. Oh, you know what? It was such a nice weekend. Oh, God, sitting. Oh, oh, having to. Ah. That's old view mentality, which will never, ever correct itself into wise view intention. It just is this. This burden, just as I mentioned as people come in here with the day fatigue, how much does that fatigue cloud you so that you're not available for life? Because I ask you, is awareness fatigued?
yes, I know you've had a hard day, and I know that mentally and physically you're tired, but is awareness fatigued? To understand and approach awareness from that perspective is to rise up out of our fatigue, no longer be entrapped within it. Is awareness angry? And you can see that this possibility is always there, moment after moment after moment. And we only hold ourselves in check because we believe the narrative that keeps us within the frame of reference of our mind. That's what holds us down. I don't know if awareness is fatigue. I'm too tired to see. After eight, maybe tomorrow morning when I wake up. And we keep giving ourselves away. Maybe if I just have the, the right experiential mixture, right? So that I'm not tired. All right, my mind is clear. I'm quiet. Uh, and you have your own dozen. Then, right? Except it's so pleasant when, that, when all those things line up. Who wants to look and see if awareness is pleasant? <laughs> I'll stay here. <laughs> and the dials change. Because they have to. Because that's the law. That's the law. And the other thing is that when you ask yourself a question beyond your state of mind, you ask yourself an interfacing question with stillness and quiet itself. Because the chatter keeps us in our form. It keeps us in ourselves. It keeps us in our old view. But as soon as we're quiet, the spell is broken. Right? But we like the company of our story. It's familiar. And this takes the courage of wonderment. And this is not a journey of force of will. What has been driving this journey since time immemorial is not our personal efforts. It is the intention we yearn, the yearning of our intention to be free. That's what determines everything in our spiritual life. Not our efforts, not our willful efforts, our volitional in efforts. It is our intention. It is our primary intention. It's life wanting to heal itself. May it be so. Can we sit for a minute or two? <coughs> so I would ask everybody if 
at all possible to stay till the end of the evening. I know some of you have buses and things to catch, so that if you do, you're certainly welcome to leave early, but otherwise, please be with us till the end. You see, what, what meditation is meant to do is to show us reveal to us the alternative to our life. Because it all go, your, your life is going on. All the madness, all the cacophony of sounds and words are in there. Your life is in there. It's complete. As you shut your eyes, you don't get out of your life. But as you quiet your reactions to your life, something else comes in. That's the change of intention. Instead of thinking like the lottery wheel, just spinning around and around within the wheel of the next thought, the space to be able to see the thoughts are occurring is the change of the very change of view that we're pointing toward. And the intention, but when you sit down, you can have an intention just to further ponder your situation and then you'll be with an old view and you'll have an incomplete intention to move your direction of your life anywhere. If, when you sit, you're not even willing to do it. Believe me, you're not going to do it when you open your eyes. It's not going to happen. but to be able and willing to see our life in a very different perspective is what meditation is. It shows us the proximity and the possibility of both the intention and the new view. But it also shows you the proximity of stillness because from that view, you're not jabbering. And so the question is, do you want to come this way? You're going to have to be still. Okay. If there's any questions or comments from anyone, I'd be happy to. Yes, sir. Sure. Would I contrast what I'm saying with the concept of surrender? Uh, I look at two sides. The old view holds, the way we change in the old view is to we adapt, right? We modify ourselves. So uh, if I don't like what, the way I am, I have to go through a series of adaptations of an evolution of, of learning a new way and then practicing and conditioning that new way into myself and then I no longer have that old conditioning. And so it's all based on conditioning and an adaptation out of the old conditioning into a new condition. Okay, so that's, that is the mechanism of the old view. That's the way the old view works 
to improve. Okay? Adaptation. And we are an adaptive species. There's no question that that is from day one, two million years ago when we walked out of the, onto the plains of wherever we were, that adaptation, actually two billion years ago when we started as a single cell somewhere in some goo, all of that has been an adaptive process. Okay, so you can't adapt your way into a new view. You can't adapt your way into the spirit into formlessness. Let me, you can, ad form adapts, form modifies itself, right? You can whittle away this and add to that, glue that on. Huh? But you can't adapt to formless. You can't, how can you adapt form to formless? Any adaptation of form remains form. So it requires a different mechanism. Right? Okay, so what does adaptation look like when it's internalized, when you look at it as an experience in yourself? It looks like thought modifying itself. You're giving yourself an alternative story to what you just, that just occurred, and that allows you to feel like you have a new expression of yourself because you have a new story regarding yourself. That's what it looks like. Surrender is the release of a story at all, of having a story. It's the release of modification. Modification, if we really get very interested in it, we see that it just takes us to a different stage of being formed. But if we want to be, if our journey is intended towards formlessness, then we have to use the very expression of formlessness, the bridge of formlessness itself, to get there, which is to be still in ourself, which is surrender. What we're surrendering is our need to be separate. The dialogue that maintains our sense of objectivity. So when I shut up, that's it. That's how close it is. And that shows you how unwilling we're, our intentions are anywhere on the board, but are will, not willing to shut up. Right? Yes, if that's right. For some <laughs> <laughs> so, see? That's why one of the great confrontations with the spirit is our willingness to be still and not change a thing. Because surrender doesn't change anything. And yet it changes everything. So that's, that's that. <laughs> yes. It's the move from mind and thought to heart feeling. Really another adaptation or a change of view or Okay, so uh, give me a one-sentence question. I couldn't quite just is. Uh, Please say more about 
moving from mind thought to heart. Okay, uh, leave feeling out of it. That's mind. Okay, so the journey from going from the mind to the heart. Right? Feeling is from the mind. Right? All feelings are mental, uh, mentally conditioned events. So I'm not talking about I'm talking about emotions, and I'm talking about pleasant and unpleasant. I'm talking about whatever definition you want to give it. It's coming from the mind, but the heart, as I use it, is not just this beating romantic thing. It's the sense of formlessness itself. I just use the heart because all of the qualities of heart are in that formlessness: caring, compassion, love, patience, generosity. The Basically, the paramis are just qualities of the formless. So, but it's an organ that gets us off of this organ. So we can stop thinking or trying to find that organ. And we go down here, and this is very quiet. It's a very quiet organ until you have an attack. <laughs> it's a very quiet organ. So the journey is the journey from believing in the way this scripts life out to be, the way it shows us, the movied projection that, has, that is revealed from this lens called the mental lens of life to the sense of stillness inside, the stillness that's not just inside but abides. So, I mean, it's... it's it's really just that simple. Although we make it extraordinarily complicated. Why do we make it complicated? Because we're not willing to be quiet. Quiet takes everything away from us that we still want from experience. Because when you're quiet, you don't have an experience. It needs, it needs your dialogue for an experience to be to be for an experience to be, it has to have somebody outside loving it and experiencing it. So an experiencer and an experience, those two things. And this doesn't, re this isn't that. This isn't that dualistic. And so because we still want something from life, we still seek it through an experience. And then we constantly have a dialogue that will show us the value or appreciation for that experience and then we just keep on see but we don't see life as an experience we see it as me and well I have this boss you what whatever you put in front of you even the boss you know it because it's an experience it's visual it's auditory it's emotional all of those are just component parts of an experience that's what we're having all the time that's all we've ever had it's all we will ever have, is an experience. That's all life can possibly offer, right? We like to skip over it and make it into something other than that, but it's not, it's just that. Right now, as you look out of your eyes, you're having an experience of what you see. That's all this is. And 
and you look over here, it's a different experience. You say, no, no, it's the same experience, same sangha. See how we all piece it together? We piece it all together. This is the same as that. It's completely different. Nobody in this section is sitting in that section. It's completely different visual appearances. But in our mind, we put it all together. And that is connected to what's outside. Even though the windows are drawn and I can't see anything that's outside, I still know outside is outside. Right? And my house and my car. And you see, it's all been... But all that's... This is what we have. This is what's left. When you really ask what you know in this moment, this is what you have. Everything else is conjecture from this. That's it. It's pretty simple. Yes? Just one clarification. When you're talking about the formless, kind of about like generosity and, and joy and all those experiences, so to me those are experiences and they're also feelings in my body. That seems congruent with what you're saying. Does that seem to No. Uh, they're not, uh, the question is, uh, when I talked about generosity and patience and love, being qualities of formlessness, she says she feels them in form. Yes, of course you feel them in form, but that's not their origin. Their origin is in the formless. That's where they, that's where, and, if, and because we bring ourselves into, uh, as soon as we feel something that's enjoyable, like the sense of love, we bring ourselves, uh, we objectify ourselves around that experience, and then we claim ownership. Oh, I'm in love, right? Or whatever it is. And so the body is the first antennae that picks up what is going on. Often it's a very good antennae, antenna of what's going on within awareness. And then it embodies that. And then perceptual, uh, perceptual fixation of what this means. And then accompanying story. And then you have all of this embellishment. Okay, all. We end the night on a high note, hopefully. This is the. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.